was mercy is powerful age after age. We just sang that, right? And it, the potency of the gospel and the potency of Christ's blood on our behalf does not wane with use. And I'm so grateful that it is just as effective for us this morning, some 2,000 years after his crucifixion, that blood still carries the same weight and power that it did for the first century Christian church. His blood is powerful age after age. Amen. Amen. This morning, uh, we are going to be continuing in our study, as has been said, of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 6 and continuing on in this theme of submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Grab this water here. And I have the happy challenge this morning of teaching you how to parent your children and how slaves are to behave. So, it's going to be a good one. Uh, Turn in your Bibles with us, with me rather, to to Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, this is picking up from chapter 5, verse 21, uh, which says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And last week, Kelly spoke on uh, the roles of husbands and wives and how that their, to, their relationship is to play out in submission to one another. And this idea of submission is, is hugely contrary to the society that we live in and, and probably humanity in general. I think that we may be in a particularly, uh, or we are certainly in a particularly tense season of history where this idea of submission is anathema uh, and hated by all. I remember recently driving to San Francisco, I think to go to the airport or something, and I remember as driving into the city up on the hill, I think either on fences or on, uh, on buildings or something, but there's big block letters that just say resist. And that's the battle cry uh, of our society today, it seems, is just resist. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, what, that's, that's oddly vague. What am, what am I to resist? Um, am I to resist the Democrats? I don't think that's probably what they were after, right? Am I probably to, to resist corruption and control and, and the patriarchy? Um, I'm to resist authority or, or the system, the man. But that's the, that's the war cry of, of our generation is resistance, resist. And yet in Christ, we have a clear call to submit, which is wildly different. And it doesn't apply only to those at the bottom towards the top, but the people at the top are resistant also to the people to whom they're supposed to be serving. There is a mutual resistance in society, and it creates chaos, and it creates strife, and disorder, and hatred, and all kinds of evil things. But the call on the Christian as we've seen and will continue to see today, is wildly different. It is to submit wives to husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. And why? Why are we to do this? How is it that we are commanded to submit to one another? And all of Ephesians really has been about providing this stable foundation and rationale as to why we ought to Submit to Christ. And it says again in in 521 that we would submit to Christ out of reverence for him. Because of all that we have in Christ, we love him and we revere him and we want to honor him in the way that we live our lives. 
Ephesians 1.3 says, We have blessed, been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've, chosen, we've been chosen to be holy and blameless before him. 1.4, we have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. 1.5, our sins are forgiven. 1.7, we have obtained an inheritance. 1.11, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1.13, Christ has been given to the head of the church. 1.22, greatly loved by God. 2.4, we have been made alive together with Christ, 2.5. We have been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places, 2.6. We are saved by grace as a free gift, 2.8. We have been created in Christ for good works, 2.10. We've been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, 2.13. Jesus is our peace, 2.14. We have been reconciled to God, 2.16. We have access to the Father, 2.18. We are members of God's household, 2.19. We are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, 2.22. We are partakers of the promise in Christ, 3.6. We have boldness before and confidence to enter, to access the Father, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. We have known the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 3.19. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 5.2. And Christ is the Savior of the church, 5.23. We have a mountain of, of rationale and reason for our submission, our willing and joyful and happy submission to Christ out of reverence for him and, and love out of all that he has done for us. And so Paul in this section, in the first, chap, first part of chapter 6 will be in verses 1 through 9, he turns his attention now from, from husbands and wives to four other types of people. We have children and parents and we have slaves and masters, and the gospel and the love of Christ has implications for these relationships that Paul has instruction for us. Unlike the world system of resistance, of, of clash, God would have a world of submission where instead of being wrapped up in rights, his kingdom preoccupies itself with a duty, with duty, out of reverence for him because of the great love that he has shown us. Your outline says, God's service towards us spurs loving duty towards one another. We submit to one another in every sphere, in every condition, every uh, walk of life, out of reverence for Christ. So let's re revere him together now in prayer as we get started. Potent blood covers uh, the elect. Lord, we... Uh, are sinners indeed, and yet we have been made free. Uh, and you, you've, uh, your, your blood, as we have said, is, is just as effective for us this morning in the 21st century as it was in the first. Uh, it is mighty to save. And God, we are gathered here as the redeemed, as people who know Christ and uh, love him and want to revere him, want to lead lives and live lives uh, that show that we are kingdom citizens. And submission does not, therefore, come easily for us simply because we are redeemed. God, we have, a, we have a strong flesh yet, even though it is dead. And we ask this morning, God, that you would continue that work in our hearts, that you would conform us, as we have been talking about, back into the original image of God. You would uh, redeem us and make us uh, like yourself. Make this word come alive to us this morning and in, in spite of its uh, difficulty, of the challenges that it provides to us, God, may it this morning cut us as a surgeon's knife and not as an enemy's blade 
that we might truly live to Christ. And, and we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so uh, stand with me. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord, and it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. May the Lord bless uh, the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So Paul starts out with instruction to children. And ushers, you may need to start passing out napkins and towels. I see the parents are salivating already. And uh, it's too bad that we dismissed the children. This would have been a great family Sunday. Shucks. The teenagers are here, at least. The uh, Minnesota Crime Commission had this to say in an article in 1926. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfless, I'm sorry, selfish, and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which which, uh, would be murderous were not he so helpless. He's dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skill. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. That was in 1926. I can't imagine anything being published like that today, although I think it's broadly true. Uh, this summer I went to the circus with my family and, and another family, and there was, it was a small little rinky-dink circus in, in Petaluma, and there were these bleachers that were set up kind of in a circle, a couple tiers of them, and we were sitting kind of towards the top so we could see the ring. And below us there was another family, and, and one of the, there, there were a few different kids, and uh, before the circus started, a man came out, there, they had concessions, and people came out with cotton candy on these big, these big boards with holes on them, and there are these brightly colored, colored uh, plumes of, of cotton candy. And one of these kids wanted a cotton candy. And it became very quickly evident that his parents were not going to allow him to have a cotton candy because this kid stood up and started screaming and pushing his parents and throwing a complete fit. It was very embarrassing on, the, on their behalf. Um, this kid was completely out of control because his parents said that he could not have cotton candy. I'm like, oh my goodness, kids, 
<laughs> stop staring, right? Like, it, it was very awkward. Um, fortunately, I thought, you know, eventually this, this father got up and he took his son and, and walked out of the room. I'm like, oh, good, good. He's, he's taking care of the problem, right? And I talked to the kids. I'm like, yeah, we don't behave that way. That's not appropriate. You know, that's not, that's not, he wasn't obeying his parents. He was not honoring his parents. Uh, but the father is disciplining him. Unfortunately, the father then came back a few minutes later with popcorn for him. And so he essentially rewarded his child's behavior by getting him a treat. Um, and in society today, we just see that played out as these kids get older. We see the destruction that it brings about. Uh, recently, I was at a, at a high school football game, and my kids needed to go to the bathroom. It was, it was across the way. And so I collected them and walked around. And to hear the language that, that these high schoolers used like it was just nothing. They didn't care who was around. They didn't care that my children were young. They didn't care that I was even trying to get past them. They would stand in the way and kind of look over their shoulder as we're like, okay, I'll, I'll go in the, in the dirt over here. And just complete disrespect for adults. The language that they used was horrible. The things that they spoke about were, were uh, embarrassing. Um, and they wore it as a, as a badge of honor. And I see that the child at the circus is growing up to be the kid at the high school. And so that, that Minnesota Crime Commission article is eerily uh, and frighteningly true. But here we read that the Christian child is to obey their parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. A lot of times we'll give, give our children instruction, and the question that comes back is why? You know, it's time to turn off the TV. Why? I need you to eat your salad. Why? And instead of saying why, we try to instruct our kids to say yes, dad, and yes, yes, mom. The bottom line is that it is right. Paul doesn't give a litany of reasons as to why to obey their parents. It's simply for this is right, although we will give a reason in a moment. Often kid, our kids will respond with why. And it, it's not always inappropriate to answer that question, and I probably need to answer it more often than I do. But at the end of the day, it's simply right to obey. Children must accept the simple fact that obeying their parents is right far before they understand each and every reason as to why in every, uh, every situation. Yes, mom. Yes, dad. Kids often also will, will ask, especially as they get older, what is, what is God's will for my life? And considering which college to go to and in considering uh, which job to get or, or which boy to spend time with or which shoes to buy or whatever it may be, we can get uh, uh, very focused and preoccupied with this idea of what is it that the Lord wants from me in my life? And yet Colossians 3.20 makes it liberatingly simple and straightforward. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So kids, if you want to please the Lord, you have a refreshingly straightforward answer. Obey your parents. I try to sell that on my kids sometimes. Like, look, your life is so easy. Just obey me. It doesn't, it doesn't work, but uh, I, I, sometimes I wish, man, if I just had like a person, and I just am supposed to do everything that person says, I would sleep better at night. So children have a duty to obey their parents, if you're following in your outline. Duty to obey 
your parents. So we're going to be going back and forth between duty and rights this morning a lot. And there's this relationship between duty and rights. If one person has a duty, the person to whom the duty is owed has a right to receive that duty. And there, there's a reciprocal nature here. So if I have a duty to work, then my employer has a right to receive my labor. If I have a duty to work, then it is right for my employer to expect me to. They have a right to that. Or if I, if I have a duty to pay taxes, then the government has a right to expect me to pay taxes. If a doctor has a duty to provide care, then I, as a patient, have a right to receive good care. And so children, you have a duty to obey your parents, and conversely, parents have a right to receive the obedience of their children or to be obeyed. But Paul's focus here is not upon individual people's rights, but rather individual people's duties. So the emphasis here is on children. Obey your parents. That is your duty. And he goes on to say also to honor your father and mother, not just to obey. And this is, he pulled, Paul pulls from the fifth commandment here um, in uh, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And this was part of Israel's covenant relationship with their God, that they do X, Y, and Z, and God does the blessing. And so in, in uh, the giving of the law, there's a fifth commandment that children are to obey their parents, and there's a promise that comes along with that, that it will go well with you in the land. There's a first commandment with a promise. It's not necessarily to be read as a personal guarantee. I had a friend um, just after high school, whose sister died of cancer, and she was quite young. And he, I remember him struggling with this passage. He was like, there's, there's a promise here that those who obey their parents have a long life. Um, and I think after wrestling through that and wrestling through this passage here this morning, the idea is not necessarily an individual guarantee to every single person, but rather that a society is going to be the benefactor of well-behaved children. Society with disobedient children will not last long, and it will certainly not go well. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing that today. John MacArthur says, Children who respect and obey their parents will build a society that is ordered, harmonious, and productive. A generation of undisciplined, disobedient children will, will produce a society that is chaotic and destructive. So in that sense, it will go well with you. Children, honor your father and mother. Honor your parents that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And parents, it's important for us to expect this of our children also, not just to expect obedience. We ought to expect obedience, but here also we're also to expect to be uh, honored. And children have a duty, yes, to obey, but they also have a duty to honor their parents. Uh, we haven't won the real obedience of our children if our commands are met with, ah, or silence. You know, there's something else that we try and require of our kids. It's like when we, when we talk to you and give you a command, I need you to look at me in the eyes and I need you to say yes. Don't wander away silently after I've asked you to do something, even if you are on your way to obey. 
You need to show honor to your parents. It's not enough just to obey, and we shouldn't settle for poor, sported, sour obedience as parents. It's true that we can't, we can't control the hearts of our, of our children, and that's really what this idea honor is about, is, is the heart attitude of our children. We can't, we can't force them to have a good heart simply by looking me in the eye and saying yes, that doesn't guarantee a good heart. But how often in our own lives does a, a proper heart and a proper attitude follow proper behavior? That first we behave and the heart follows. I mean, imagine, imagine in your own life if uh, every, every impulse to, you satisfied every impulse to sin. Because you said, well, I want it. My heart's obviously not good. So what good is it going to be to deny myself when I know my heart's not in the right place? No, we don't live that way, right? We discipline ourselves. We obey because we love Christ, not always because our heart is in the right place. And as we do that, as we continue to deny ourselves, walk in faith, walk in obedience, God creates in us a good heart. And so too with our kids, we ought to require that they treat their parents with a sense of honor, even if it's not necessarily in their heart at the time. That's something that we have to, we have to work through with our kids and kids, the, the goal of showing honor to your parents is not to puff them up or to make them feel good about themselves or to make them feel powerful, but that it might go well with you. Your parents, by and large, particularly probably in this room, love you very, very much. And so it would be right for you to honor them. It will go well with you. It will go better for you if you obey your parents. If you fail in the home as a child, you're likely to fail in the workplace. Things are not going to magically switch on once you leave the home. I remember kind of having that sort of feeling and my friends having that feeling growing up. It was like, man, I just can't wait to get out of here. Uh, everything is going to go great for me. I was like, well, if you can't obey your parents, if you can't honor your parents, you're not magically going to obey and honor an employer. And if you're not obeying and honoring your employer, you're not going to get promoted. If you're not getting promoted, you're not going to get raises. Like life doesn't all, all of a sudden magically change just because these people are not your parents. So obey your parents, honor your parents. It will go well with you. Verse four, Paul moves on to fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I need the usher's help again to barricade the back door. This is not a good time for parents to take a bio break. Uh, Paul has instructions for us as well as parents. And before the wives uh, think they are off the hook here, this word father is um, pater, and elsewhere in Scripture, this same word is, is translated as parents. So I think this is equally applicable to both father and mother, although maybe particularly applicable to fathers. It says in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This idea of provocation or provoking is a gradual buildup of offense and frustration until it finally boils over. And this was in stark contrast to, uh, to the, the societal norms of parenting and particularly fatherhood in Paul's day in, in the Roman Empire. There was a thing called paterfamilias, which was a, a sort of a social structure where the father of the home had absolute authority over his children from, from day one. Uh, if, a, if a child was born and the father did not like the child for whatever reason, maybe it was a girl and he wanted a boy or it had a, a, a deformation of some sort, he could take the child and throw it outside and it would die of exposure and no, no harm, no foul. Uh, fathers could sell their children into slavery. 
Fathers could make their children slaves to themselves and send them off to the fields. Uh, fathers could sell their daughters as prostitutes. Fathers could do whatever they wanted to their children and frequently did. So this idea that fathers somehow should be gentle or loving or kind and not provoke their children to anger was a foreign concept in the early world, particularly in Rome. And we, we struggle with this still today, perhaps Hopefully, certainly, we're not exposing our children, but um, we, maybe particularly as fathers, are prone to provoke our children to anger. And we can do this in any number of ways, a paralyzingly wide array of ways, perhaps. Uh, but we will hit on a few of them this morning. Uh, overprotection is one, allowing siblings and, and bullies to ruin the lives of our children without intervening. If if your children are being attacked at school or if their siblings are being uh, uncommonly rude and, uh, and insulting, as parents, we need to step in. If you don't, that's infuriating to a child. That's provoking them to anger. We need to be protective of our children. And yet, we can't swing the pendulum too far the other way where we become overprotective parents because that's also frustrating and provoking to a child where we smother with over-restriction and and require them to be here at a certain time and do this at a certain time and eat this at a certain time and have these friends and not these friends and watch this and don't watch this and read this and don't, watch, don't read this, we can become overbearing and overprotecting in our parenting. And we need to allow children to make mistakes because they're children and they're going to make mistakes whether you allow them to or not. A good analogy I was given once is like when your child is starting to learn to drive, it's a good idea to take them to a big, wide, open parking lot like the fairgrounds, not Highway 101. And it's because they're going to make mistakes. And if they're going to make mistakes, let's have them make mistakes in a safe, in a safe arena, right? Not in a, in, a, in a dangerous one. So likewise, in the home, we allow our kids to make mistakes while they're protected in our home, where a mistake is not going to ruin their lives. But if we, we can exercise a level of control over our kids that prevents them from any measure of harm, any measure of discomfort, any measure of awkwardness, um, and that's not serving them well, we need to allow them to make mistakes. We can show favoritism. This is particularly an issue in families with more than one, one child, right, where we favor maybe the younger, or we favor a daughter over a son, or uh, one son over another son, one daughter over another daughter, and that creates frustration and anger in our kids, and we should not uh, play favorites. We can also live uh, vicariously through our children. If your kid is not on the varsity team, and you never made it on the varsity team, it's okay that they're not on the varsity team. Maybe they don't care about being on the varsity team. We should not push our own version of success onto our kids, but allow them to have their own interests and their own hobbies and their own cares and excel at the things that they excel at, which may be in all likelihood very different from the things that you would like them to excel at. This can give them, uh, give them a complex that nothing they ever do is good enough. I mean, how, how many of us have felt like that uh, you know, as, as kids growing up for one reason or another that it was like it was just never enough and we don't, we don't, wanna, we don't want that for our kids. I think we can combat that by, by giving compliments in the things that our kids are good at. Take an interest in the things that your kids are interested in, even if they're not your favorite thing. I've, I've, I've struggled with this a little bit with Pokemon. I'm like, I don't know, I don't care about Pokemon. 
but my kids really do. And so, like, maybe I should learn a name or two on these Pokemon characters because they care about it. We can emphasize failure over success. If the only time you get up off the couch is to reprimand your child, you might be provoking your children. When do they hear from you? When do your kids hear from you? Is it when they're frustrating you? Is it when they've made you angry? Is it when they've disobeyed? Or is it also when they've done well and when they're just in the room? Another way that we can provoke our children is treating them like they're a burden. When your child wants a ride to his friend's house and gas is six fifty a gallon, it might be easy to groan and complain about that. But let's not treat our kids as a burden. If they need a ride or spending money to go see a movie with a friend or if they need new clothes or a new pair of shoes, we should, we should happily engage them on that level. Your, your job as a parent is to provide for your child. And that doesn't just mean keeping them above starvation. We want to bless our kids. We don't want our, to, our kids to think that, that they're a, a great burden to us. There's a sign uh, in the Hansons' house that, that I, I read, I just noticed for the first time a week or two ago, that will bring it up on the screen. Um, I love this. Let's see if I can, I'll read it for us. It says, this is, this is in the laundry room, that's important. Uh, Today I will be thankful for all the little socks, the grass-stained jeans, the endless piles of laundry. For there will come a day when the laundry basket is empty and these days will be profoundly missed. In John MacArthur's uh, commentary on this passage, he shares a candid uh, quote from a Christian father. I want to read it for us. Uh, It says, One Christian father confesses, My family's all grown and the kids are all gone. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, I would listen more even to the littlest child. I'd be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. Parents, we have a duty to teach our children. We have a duty, first, not to anger our children, not to provoke our children. But secondly, we have a a duty to teach our children. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if parents but gave as much thought to the rearing of their children as they do to the rearing of animals and flowers, the situation would be very different. Presumably the, the, the negative situation would be very different. And for us, maybe it's not flowers, maybe it's not animal husbandry, but it's, it's our hobbies, it's our physical appearance, it's our private time, it's our careers, These things can distract us from the one thing that God actually has called us to, one not as the only, but maybe the primary, and that is the parenting of our children and the teaching them in the Lord. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This idea of discipline, I think, has at least two facets. Uh, one of them is, is punitive, is disciplining our children when they do something wrong. We ought to require obedience of our children. And, and I would say we, sh- should not, we should stop counting to three when our children disobe- disobey. One, one, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, two and nine tenths. Like we play this game, right? Teaching them that sin is okay for a certain amount of time. We ought not do that. We shouldn't make deals with them. If you obey, then I'll, I'll get you the popcorn. Um, no, we should, we should discipline our children in the Lord. Uh, and unfortunately, in the church, the, this idea that children should not be controlled but should just be sort of uh, diverted or directed has, has sunk in, has creeped in. Uh, the, the social norms of our culture we're not uh, immune to. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, in his commentary, says this, instruction concerning relationship between parents and children being restricted to those who are in the Lord will hardly be heeded among the ungenerate, unregenerate, rather, but how binding it is upon those who are saved. A theory born of the insufficient ideals of the world, which is to the effect that, we will, that the will of the child should not be crossed, but merely guided, is bearing its fruit today in unprecedented lawlessness and disregard to God. Unprecedented lawlessness and disregard to God. This was written in 1935, by the way. Uh, that Christian parents are adopting these modern ideals and by so much are disregarding the plain instructions of God's word is an error of serious consequence. Where may such a Christian parent expect a child to learn obedience to God if parental discipline has been neglected? And we understand to some extent how this stuff plays out and and why the pendulum swings, right? We might look back at the 1950s or at least our conception of what life then was as parents and children and see the Leave it to Beaver family and think, well, that was really overbearing and that was really austere and kids need to have more freedom than that. And so the pendulum swings in the other direction. But the answer to harsh discipline is not a permissive attitude towards sin. And the answer to rampant sinful behavior is not overbearing discipline. Discipline must be done in love and, and consistently. We must discipline our children as God disciplines us. Back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, when you are disciplining your child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Listen to this. Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. Self-control is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. And this is exceedingly true in our relationship with our children. How many times I think it's embarrassing to think about how, how I have disciplined my own children in frustration and anger in the moment instead of giving myself a second to recover and consider the person that I'm dealing with and check my own heart first. We ought to discipline in love and consistently. This, another facet of this idea of discipline is also instruction in the Lord and spiritual instruction. And, 
And this too, in many ways, we're, we're capable of going, going astray and going off, off the rails. I've heard Christian parents, well-meaning perhaps, Christian parents saying, I don't want to push Jesus on my kids. I don't want to push religion on my kids. But by a show of hands this morning, who, who in this room learned Christ, learned Christianity from your parents? So everyone look around. Someone was doing it, right? And these people are still in church today. Parents are really God's primary tool of evangelism. And if we as parents neglect that, we do them a disservice. Parents have a duty to teach their children. And conversely, children have a right to godly instruction. Okay, you can relax now. We're past the children piece, we're past the parent piece. We're moving into a much less controversial topic now of slavery. So uh, verse 5, verse 5 through 8. So it's, it bond, your version probably says bond servants. The Greek word here is doulos, and it means slave. Um, there are modern translations of the Bible that say slave. Uh, it's throughout the Old Testament, it's throughout the New Testament. This word is slave it's often translated as bondservants to, to help what we all feel when we hear the word slave. Um, slavery in the Old Testament, as we'll, we'll see, was regulated by God. Nowhere in the Bible is slavery outright condemned. That's an awkward thing for Christians to grapple with, and we should grapple with it. Um, but slavery was a real issue in Paul's day and today. Uh, in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, between, they think between uh, 10 and 20% of the Roman Empire population were slaves. So depending upon the population, you're looking at potentially 10 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It's estimated that some cities had more slaves than free people. And these were not just laborers. There were slaves who were doctors. There were slaves who were teachers. There were slaves who were administrators and, uh, uh, <clears throat> and led businesses. These are not just physical laborers. And this is still a problem today. It's estimated that globally today, there are around 50 million slaves today, a quarter of which are children. To put that into some sort of perspective, that's basically the population of the entire western seaboard, California plus Oregon plus Washington, slaves globally, a quarter of which are children. And this is, this is by and large a great evil and we can put together kind of a, a tricky syllogism <clears throat> regarding slavery that, again, we, need, we do need to grapple with at least some this morning. It would take hours to completely unfold it, and we won't do that. But the syllogism goes this way. Slavery is wrong. The Bible does not condemn slavery. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. And if those statements are true, then together that syllogism holds out a truism that the Bible is wrong. And yet we know that the Bible is not wrong. So what is it? Is slavery not wrong? Or does the Bible condemn slavery? And I think that's part of the reason why our modern translations do change the way that they, that they translate the word slave because it meant so many different things back in the time that it was written versus what we think of now um, typically, probably, we all think to sort of the chattel slavery of, of the United States, where boats went over to Africa, stole people from their homes, brought them to the United States, and forced them to work. 
as if they were animals. And I think that kind of slavery, I don't think, I know that kind of slavery is wicked and hated by God. There were regulations for God's people, Israel, back in the Old Testament regarding slavery. And, and, and I, help, I think it's helpful to learn about those systems to kind of help color our perspective of what this word slave and slavery refers to. In Israel, slaves could only be held for six years, and they had to be treated well. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and Exodus 21 talk about these things. Uh, when slaves were released, they were supposed to be furnished from the flock and from the threshing floor and from the wine press, so that when, when someone's tenure ran out, you did not send the slave away empty-handed, but you gave him from your flock and you gave him from your grain and you gave him from your wine so that he would be able to make a living on his own, sort of giving him that startup seed money. There were special rules and protections for female slaves. Abused slaves were supposed to be set free. In Exodus 21, it says if you knock, even knock out the tooth of a slave, you have to let him go. So abuse was not permitted. They were allowed to celebrate holidays. They got the Sabbath off. And we, we read, too, that some slaves loved their masters so much that at the end of the six years, they said, I want to become a slave to you for the rest of my life because the, the Scripture says they loved their master. I mean, th when I was reading through this and studying this, it, was, it, was, it, it changed the way that I kind of thought about that word slave. I cannot imagine cannot imagine a slave loving their master to the degree that they would not allow themselves to be set free. And yet, that's what we see. Moreover, slavery is repudiated in Scripture multiple times, especially that kind of chattel slavery that America went through. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Man-stealing was a capital offense. Owning a slave who had been stolen from his home, a capital offense. In 1 Timothy 1.10, uh, it's talking about the law. And it says, law is not laid down uh, for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Listen to this list. list. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and, whoever, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Slavery is contrary to sound doctrine. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 21-24, Paul, Paul is saying that uh, we're all one in Christ, let, let, you know, let the, the married stay married, let the unmarried stay unmarried, let the slave become a, stay, remain a slave. But he says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And there are a number of reasons probably why Paul did not outright condemn slavery in the Bible because of the time in which he lived the whole economy was built upon slaves. We've already said 10 to 20% of the population was, were slaves, and certainly that doesn't justify it. But Christians couldn't also, they also couldn't change the legal system. It's not like the Christians could just get together and go down to the voting, the voting booth and, and, and pull the lever for no slavery in, in Rome. Rome was not a democracy. Also, telling slaves to run away, to rebel against their owners, was essentially a death, a death sentence. At the time, slaves who ran away were crucified. It is that simple. 
Rome also had set limits as to how many slaves could be released. So even if you were a slave owner and Paul said, hey, you need to release all your slaves, Roman law said that if you owned three slaves, you can only let two go. If you had four to 10, you can only get rid of half. If you have 11 to 30, you can only get rid of a third. So there were laws in place preventing people from freeing their slaves even in Rome. And also Roman law uh, made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for slaves who were freed, who were under 30 years to ever become a citizen. So by letting your slave go who was not yet 30, you're, saying, you're basically preventing them from ever becoming a citizen of Rome, which was a huge, a huge deal as well. So it is a, a complicated situation, certainly a, a sticky wicket. But that aside, Paul does have instructions. And since no one here this morning is a slave, and no one here this morning owns slaves, uh, these terms are also equally applicable to the employee and the employer. So if you're an employee this morning, this is great instruction. If you're a boss this morning, this is great instruction. Slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord." So we're to serve with fear and trembling, with respect. Employees, you need to respect your bosses. Common mantra in society today is that you, you respect those uh, to, who have earned respect, that respect has to be earned. I would push back against that. I don't believe that respect has to be earned. We're told here that we are to honor people as though we were honoring Christ. If you respect Christ, you need to respect your boss no matter how disrespectful you think uh, he is or disrespectable you think he is. And we're also to serve with sincerity, like you were serving Christ. Work hard because you are serving Christ, it says. It says, as you would Christ, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God as to the Lord. And says, you will receive from, not your employer, not your master, but from the Lord. And so we're to serve as though it is Christ we are serving because indeed it is Christ whom we are serving. Interesting here too uh, that it says the slave is going to receive back from God. So in this sense, slavery really has been abolished for the Christian because they will receive payment from Christ, from God himself. So in, a, in, in that sense, there really is no such thing as a Christian slave, because they will be paid by the Lord. So slaves and employees, we have duties. We have a duty to serve with, with respect, serve with respect, and conversely, masters have a right to receive respect. And slaves and employees also have a duty to work hard, and therefore masters have a right to a job well done. And there's a third duty here that's introduced. God has a duty God has a duty to repay the faithful slave. God has a duty to repay the faithful slave or the unfaithful employee. Faithful slaves, therefore, have a right to heavenly reward. And as soon as a slave has rights, he's more than a slave, maybe not a slave at all. All right, verse 9, to close us out, final instruction here is for masters. It says, masters, do the same to them 
and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Do the same. So he just gets off of three verses explaining how slaves are supposed to submit to their masters, serve their masters, respect their masters, work really hard for their masters. And Paul starts out with, with instructions to the, to the masters saying, do the same. The masters are supposed to serve their slaves. Masters are supposed to work hard for their slaves. Masters are supposed to respect their slaves. This is just another thing studying through that started to change my idea and my preconceptions about slavery. God completely changes the system and turns it on its head. Masters are supposed to serve their slaves and respect their slaves and to treat them as they expect to be treated. They're supposed to stop threatening. Don't threaten. And as a boss, serve your employees if you're a boss. Serve them. Don't threaten them. Respect them. Treat them as you would like to be treated in the Lord. Why? Paul gives a reason. Halfway through nine, knowing that he who is both their master, the master of the slave, and yours, your master, is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him, that the slave and the master have the same master in Christ. The slave is your brother, and that changes everything. Christ turns masters and slaves, proprietors and property into brothers, and that changes the whole system. It's not possible to heed the scripture's commands to love your brother as yourself when you regard your brother as a property. And so no, Paul did not come out and condemn and, and, uh, and abolish slavery in the Bible. But he did something far bigger and greater, and we've seen the effects today that wherever Christianity spreads in, substantial, in a substantial way, slavery recedes. Unfortunately, it took the United States far too long to make this happen. Praise the Lord, it did happen eventually. But it's not possible to regard another human being as a property or as a slave when you are to regard them as a brother and lay down your life for them and to serve them and respect them and treat them as you would like to be treated. So masters, too, have duties. Master's duty is to serve their slave, and again, we can swap out these terms, if you please. Serve your uh, masters or bosses. Serve your employees. And uh, employees have a right to be cared for. Masters and bosses or employers have a duty not to threaten their employees. Employees have a right to feel safe. So in this submission to Christ out of reverence for Christ, we are to submit one to another. Last week, Kelly talked about husbands and wives, and we've seen this week, children are to submit to their parents. Parents are, sub are to submit, in a sense, to their children and not provoking them to anger. And slaves and employees are to submit to their bosses, even when their bosses are not kind or fair. And masters or bosses are to submit, in a sense, to their employees, to care for them and to treat them well. All out of, because of, Reverence for Christ out of all that he has done for us. And Christian, if you have been captivated by Christ's work on your behalf, if you are a, a worshiper of God today, you are to submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ, out of the love for all that he has done for us, not with an eye towards our station or circumstance, even as a slave, but towards the lordship of Christ. A reverent focus on the duties, on our duties in Christ, employers, employees, husbands, wives, children, parents, and not upon our rights, exalts the sufficiency and the goodness of our Lord. And in looking through these four specific stations of life, of of child, of parent, of, of slave, and master, I consider how Christ has satisfied each of these perfectly in a way that we can't even imagine to. Christ obeyed the Father. Christ was a son. Christ was a type of child, right? He was a son of the Father. And he obeyed the Father even to the point of death, death on the cross. And God, is, as our heavenly Father, disciplines us, us in love perfectly. He doesn't provoke his children to anger, but he's patient with them and he's loving towards them. He disciplines us as lo- in love as his children and he does it perfectly, tenderly, and for our good. And Christ, even in, in uh, Philippians just the next book over, he is, he is described as a slave. It's the same word as bondservant here. And if, if Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And that word servant is the same. It's slave. He took the form of a slave and he did it perfectly. And lastly, the Father is our master. He's the master of every man, right? He's the master of the universe. He exercises his mastery perfectly with love and care. I want to close us with Ephesians uh, 1, starting in verse 16. I'll read this for us. It says, I do not cease to give thanks to you for remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Father indeed fill us with the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. Isn't the Trinity a beautiful and wonderful thing?